Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Good morning, everyone. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for having me along. We've got a great show today. First up, oh my goodness, I've been so into this data leak and the personalities involved. Um the astonishing government response. I'm talking about the worldwide news, really, in our circles, uh, release of the Ministry of Health data on vaccinations and death rates by Barry Young. To try and understand it better, we'll be talking to our resident nerd and data person and patent person, Kathy Jamieson. Oh, my goodness, I always enjoy having her on. And for something different, I recently got interviewed, and it was a funny thing because for a long time I was always being interviewed, and now I'm the interviewer, but I got interviewed by a lovely lady called Christine Smith who runs a podcast for homeschoolers, wonderful, wonderful lady, and uh, she interviewed me and she said we should share it on Reality Check Radio, so we'll be doing that later this morning. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at radio. Thank you for having me along. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning. 
keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. Shall we talk with Rodney Hype? Oh, my cup of runneth over. We have got my mailbag coming up. So much we've had to separate it out and have two lots. So we're just doing, to begin with, all the stuff about Ashley Church and Israel-Gaza. Uh, and it's huge and free divided. Uh, but I appreciate your feedback. We have invited, we're seeking someone from, if you like, the Palestinian side to speak. We've been to talk. We're in talks with the Palestinian Solidarity Network, Aotearoa. And they've said they'd like to come on, but they're just having trouble finding time. So I'm hoping to bring you the Palestinian Solidarity Network of Aotearoa to put the other side, and we will listen respectfully uh, and talk and try to better understand everything. Here's the feedback. Rodney, I have struggled with the whole war going on now with Israel and Palestine too in many ways, trying to navigate the truth in it all. The thing that most stands out is to make me go W2F is MP Swarbrick's chant, much the same as Ardennes, comrades chanting when she was in protest, wolf and sheep's closing. I have good friends who follow Ama Safiti with a T, T-S-A-V-A-T-S-A-F-A-T-I, who runs a Telegram page for Independent Truth Media. And I've learned a lot from my good friend who has had a great deal of knowledge around the history. Thanks for your discussions on the subject, Jax. Thank you, Jax. Hi, Rodney. Could your guest clarify what his faith is since he raised it and is central to his bias? By the way, are the anti-corruption demonstrations still ongoing? Steve. I don't know. Uh, I don't think actually if he disguised it, it was a mistake. He's a Christian. Uh, Sorry, Rodney, I've had to stop listening to all this Israeli propaganda. I'm not taking sides with Hamas either, but I do support the Palestinian people's right to live in Palestine in peace. I like you, Rodney, and I know you're willing to learn and to change your mind. So please investigate Middle Eastern history plus Azaria, ancient and modern. Then the scales may fall from your eyes and you will behold the truth. Good luck, Donna. Thank you, Donna. Interesting. Uh, Live in peace. Can they live in peace in the Gaza Strip? Weren't they doing that for a while? Or does live in peace in Palestine mean no Israel? I'm not trying to be tricky. I'm trying to understand. Uh, You need to get Roger Waters on for a truce perspective. You know he was in a little band called, I don't know, Pink Floyd. I love Pink Floyd. Uh, Roger Waters. Mm. It's sad, isn't it? I do love that music. Oh, my goodness. His music is so good. So good to hear the history of Israel is told by Ashley Church on Rodney's show. I read Israel's history as a teenager, and I'm aghast at how little today's generation know it and simply follow blindly the propaganda coming through mainstream media. Ashley is telling it so well. Thank you so much, Rodney, for allowing this to be told. Delwin. It's called the Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur is the holiest biblical day, the Day of Atonement, Paul. Great book on the Six-Day War called The Six-Day War by Randolph S. Churchill. Hmm. 
That's an auspicious name. That was Winston Churchill's father, was it? Or was he was he Randolph S? I do appreciate you facilitating as well as other RCR hosts different views and especially with the Gaza conflict. Personally, the way you let different people voice whatever they stand for enables me to listen to opposing views without being steered into having to take a side. Thanks for that. Rodney Show, the hatred of Israel is spiritual. Israel's neighbors have been trying to destroy Israel since biblical times. Psalm 83, verse 4, they say, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. From Fiona. Hi, Rodney. Most interesting discussion regarding Israel and Hamas. Thank you for your efforts to get the truth out, Peter Hamilton. Hi, Rodney. I just wanted to remind you that the people behind the even the Middle East want you to pick a side. Kind regards, Nick. Ah, see, I think you do have to pick a side. But Nick, we need to talk about that because I could be wrong. But I think this is a conflict where you do. It's funny, isn't it? Because I never say that about the UK. Hmm. Am I a hypocrite? Am I wrong? So you have the Palestinians who are a different skin color getting slaughtered, and you try to correlate the story with the New Zealand Maori. This is propaganda at the highest levels. Different skin color to whom? The Palestinians. Don't get that one. It only takes a few self-seated nutcases to ruin it for everyone. We should never be complacent, regards Peter. Hi there, Rodney. You need to really watch these documents, documentaries, Hellstorm, Eisenhower's death camps, and Europa. These documentaries will make you look at everything in a different way, all about World War II and the lies that people still believe. Thanks, G. Rodney, you have been grafted into the olive tree, Romans 11, 17, therefore chosen too. It's not predicted they're using the Bible as a guide. Religion is the root of all evil in the world. I used to think that, and now I don't. And now I think it's a source of all goodness in the world, and there's still a lot of evil. If we don't have religion, how do we separate out evil and goodness? How does it make sense? Read Chloe, Rodney, you said she could be mad, misinformed or evil, etc. By her saying her river to the sea chant, could it be she means Jews go somewhere else so that the Philistines can have the land? I think you're correct about her motivation, but in fairness to her, I haven't heard her actually say, I want Jews killed. Geet. No, I think you're right. But of course, in siding with Hamas, they certainly want them killed. Uh, ask of the Bolsheviks, Jews. A great interview with Ashley Church, giving a more accurate account of the historical background of the Jewish people. Suggest you get Paul Brennan to listen to this so he can hear a different perspective on the subject. Keep up the good work, Alistair. Spot on, Ashley. Agree with everything you say. There are many people who ho hold Ashley's perspective, but you never hear this in the mainstream media. Thank you. Thank you, RCR, yet again for allowing this perspective to be heard. Most young people don't realize that Israel is geographically so small you can fit it 11 times into the size of New Zealand. They are fighting for their lives. Hello, Rodney. Listening to church is so bad that I actually had to take breaks. I'm so sorry. He is reading straight out of the English history book. Hmm. He is denying humanity to all. Reminds me on fascist textbooks. See, this is where it goes on. Ing says wrong. But I don't think he was denying humanity or a fascist. Have you read, listened to Jewish Voice for Peace? Amar Ahas, no. Gabo Amat. All Jewish voices. They're saying Jewish with a Y. Holocaust survivor and the children of the Holocaust. Church is so arrogant that it's almost impossible to listen to. 
and this has nothing to do with science. His limited Wikipedia knowledge of Zionism is embarrassing. The self-righteousness in his talk and the dehumanization of people is terrible. Does he even know that half of the population in Gaza are children? So many U.S. voices to interview. Why him? Thank you for all you do. Well, thank you, Judith. But I think it's unfair. He can be wrong. We can all be wrong. But I don't think there was anything dehumanizing. I hope not. Hi, Rodney. Why aren't you getting Palestinians to talk on the radio? I'm desperately trying. Well, not Palestinians. I'm trying to get the Palestinian cause spokespeople here in New Zealand on the radio. We're in contact with them. They're trying to find a time that would work. Rodney, what does Ashley think of describing Christians as honorary Jews, adopted by the father of Jesus, making us his brothers, therefore Jewish like him? Not that we have to keep the Jewish law, but obey the law of love. Hmm. I'll ask him one day. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't think you've learned anything in your travels to being so-called freedom supporter because it's freedom for people no matter what color of their skin. Well, I would agree with you. Rodney, thank you for interviewing the well-informed Ashley Church. So encouraging to have the simplicity of the truth aired publicly, Bobby. Appreciate your great talk with Ashley Church. Good to get a balance on this. I stand with Israel and have a flag flying to show support. God bless, Jackie. That's great. Thank you. Excellent interview, Rodney, with Ashley Church. So refreshing to hear a perspective that would never be allowed on mainstream media. Thank you, RCR. Wonderful interview from the incomparable Rodney Hyde with Ashley Church. I hung on every minute. Very enlightening. All the best, Jeremy. I don't go to Tamaki's church, but was at the pro-Israel Queen Street March with all sorts of people, not all Christians. The only problem, there was only one other church leader there who put his head up, Peter Mortlock. Brian asked every church to be represented there, but none showed, including RCR. I can't praise Tamaki without expressing deep shame that the march wasn't 20 times as big and supportive by all sections of society. I heard a saying once, the only way for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing. Heard that one, RCR? No, I won't be afraid if you stand by me. Don't sing this unless you're actually there. Doers, not only speakers. Keith. Oh, well, I wasn't there. Um, I'm not sort of a protest sort of guy, generally. It was a big thing for me to go to the parliamentary protest. It doesn't mean that I don't support. Does it? Thoroughly enjoyed your interviews with Ashley Church. Rodney, for the past seven weeks, there have been peaceful rallies in Christchurch each Sunday, 3 p.m. at the Bridge of Remembrance in support of Israel. Please feel free to join us, Bobby. Well, I would, Bobby, if I'm in Christchurch. I definitely would. Real talk, Ashley, and you spoke so well. Thank you for sharing and validating exactly what my husband and I have been discussing since the 7th of October. Hamas are terrorists, and Israel are in no way the aggressors or oppressors. Anyone who condones the raping, killing, kidnapping, and torture of anybody has no right to be demanding anything. This is diabolical. This is spiritual. Brad and Anita. Excellent interview with Ashley Church, Rodney. I concur with him. Thank you. Well, it's divided, but isn't that okay? And we can talk. And like I said, I'm very trying very hard to get someone on. I can understand it because I guess I've nailed my colors to the mast, but I promised them a fair interview. I promised listeners a fair interview. Um, but tough questions. I think I put tough questions to Ashley too. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can send us a text at 2057. Email me at inbox at radio. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness. If you're anything like me, you've been beside yourself. I lurk on Twitter. I don't post anything on Twitter, but I, <clears throat> I follow Twitter, and I get my news from Twitter. I just follow journalists, and I and I love it. And, oh, my goodness, it came up that Liz Gunn was giving this interview with this, uh, what, whistleblower, a, uh, 
under the pseudonym Winton Smith. Winston Smith, Winton Smith. Anyway, I listened to that agog. It took me a while. It took a while to get into the actual data. And to be honest, I thought it was a bit odd because it's a very small set that we're talking about these particular areas and these particular vaccinators. So I thought that was odd. And I thought, but it's what a huge data set. I mean, this is this is gold. And then Steve Kirsch said he was coming out uh, at MIT with his analysis of the data. Oh, my goodness, it was like Christmas. And I watched him live and do his analysis. And I thought, what's all this going to mean? What's well, gone crazy? It's gone absolutely crazy. Uh, what's now happened is people were saying, oh, no, the data's sus. It's not quite right. And this poor um, Barry Young, we know his name is, he's had the cops turn up at his house. He's been arrested. My goodness, you can be a murderer and you can wander around New Zealand, no trouble. Rapist, no trouble. Leak some health data um, because what's happening concerns you. Police turn up, arrest you. And then all the all these other people are coming in. Oh no, the data's not right, not right. Can't make sense of it. To join us, our favourite uh, COVID adverse event reporter, Kathy Jamieson. Good morning. Good morning, Rodney. How are you doing? Do you know how much I like talking to you? <laughs> A lot. A lot, because uh, people can't see your wonderful smile and your twinkle in your eyes which is delightful but also you go interesting places and i want you to tell me i've told everyone what i made of this i'm excited still because i just think it's lifting the lid and the fact that the ministry of health have gone full nuclear option and haven't actually said what this guy's done wrong exactly other than spread misinformation um, the data should be properly anima animatized so you can't identify people and released and made public. No question. Should be released. Should be subject to the Official Information Act. Um, this is a government. Governments, governments shouldn't be keeping secrets without good reason. Mm. And if there's no reason to keep a secret, they shouldn't. But anyway, that's me. I want to know what you make of it. Tell me everything. Oh, well... I I haven't looked at the data myself. I've I've watched the interviews. Um, I've watched the interviews that Liz did with um, this chap she's calling was Winston Smith, and they also did uh, an interview interview with a um, a pathologist from Australia. I think he is, which I watched, yes. and and then I watched Steve Kirsch's presentation, and then sort of sat back and watched the furore unfold. <laughs> Um, and I and I didn't look at the data because there was so much sort of criticism about, um, you know, it was incomplete and it was this and it was that. But it was quite interesting this morning. Um, a few of those questions were um, answered on Reality Check Radio with Paul. Oh, yesterday, yes, with um, Paul Brennan. Yeah, and then again, and then after that too, you know, the discussion between Guy Hatchard and Alistair. Mm. So, so some of my questions I've got have been answered. Um, I mean, the original sort of criticism was around, it wasn't a complete data set. So, 
this Winston Smith himself, or Barry Young as he's called, um, he said himself, this is this is a pay-per-dose um, system, but it is not the only system. Mm. Said it's the biggest, but it's not the only one. And it's the one he has access to. He yes. had access yeah, to the one that he was the sole database administrator for. So the big question there is, what's the demarcation line between that and the other systems? Mm. Because so, Steve Kirsch is saying that the pay-per-dose database is a random sample, very, very large sample, of the total population that was dosed. But that's a big question, right? It is, yeah, because when you look at the presentations that have been done on it and then you'll these slides come up of the sites, with the exception of one, which was a home and hospital, Tocopi or something like that, um, they've all been mobile sites. So even like the the two that were in the um in the very first presentation was um a, a medical center in in Bacargo, but it was the it was the outreach. So mm. outreach is you know you go out into the community and give vaccinations. And La Hood's pharmacy in Gore that was highlighted, it was the vaccinations given off site, not the vaccination. And- given on-site. And these could be people at death's door. Well, you have to sort of ask the question, if it is um, slanted towards, um, you know, mobile, it's people Mm. that aren't going to come in for their Mm. own vaccinations, which tends to be because they aren't as mobile themselves. Mm. It's interesting that 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 was the argument about there being bad batches which were very small samples and, like you say, mobile units, odd sites where you might expect it. But Steve Kirsch himself, correct me if I'm wrong, he was concentrating on the data in total, not pulling out particular centres. Yeah. And that that seemed to be more sound. Well, that's what he said this morning, and that you just kind of look at – um, the data in total, because if you're starting to look at, you know, different batches and whatever, it's more complex and there's more nuance and you have to sort of, you have to do a more complex analysis of it. So I think, you know, he, he's he's sensible when he says that. He's, he's sort of talking about um, sort of one in a thousand vaccinations are causing... Yes. Yes, and then he's sort of extrapolating out and saying if we've done 12 million, then that's 12,000 excess death. Now, if we go back to what you and I talked about months ago with John Gibson's analysis, if that sort of 60 excess deaths a week is carrying on, then... um, and you know, for because he said that started in November of 2021, so that's sort of two years, and that's a big assumption. But just for argument's sake, let's say it has that would have us at about six and a half thousand excess death. And I know mm. that 
I know that one of the criticisms sort of levelled Steve's data is our excess death is not that high, is not as high as 12,000. However, it's funny, we do seem to have stopped arguing like we were, say, four or five months ago about whether there is excess death. Yes. Seems to be commonly accepted. Oh, I shouldn't laugh. It seems to be commonly accepted now that we have it. It's just a what we are debating is what's causing it and um and and how much is it? Here's a question for you. You may know the answer to. Um, where does the death data come from? I understand that you have you're paying for the you're paying for the vaccination to be done. You've got the date, you've got the batch number, you've got the where, you've got the person. I guess to allow for an audit, you've got the person's health number, which may be able to work back through to their medical records. Do you understand how they've got the, the date of death or the death, the fact that they've died in this database? I don't know. I don't know for sure how they can, but um, it's certainly a question that everybody, you know, most people are asking, right? Including myself. So um, I had a quick look at that, and it's publicly available from the MB website if you have a person's name. Sorry. Well, um, it's public if you have a person's name, like Rodney Hyde. You can search apparently and see if they're living or dead. Ah. So if you're a clever database administrator, I, I mean, I'm I'm guessing he hasn't gone through and typed in two point two. No, no you just people's names. Yeah. There might maybe there's a way of doing a query. A yeah, just querying the database. How interesting. So that's one possible answer to your question, but I don't actually know. But I know, that, I know that it is publicly available if you have the person's name and it has the date of their death um, and sometimes it will even have the time, but apparently that's less common. And if you're still alive, they have your name there, but you're alive or do they just have deaths? I haven't actually looked myself. I have just been told. How amazing. Hmm. I will. I, I did not know that. Well, we don't either know that. We've just been told that, and that would explain it. And you would have the date, and you've got the date of vaccination. And this, um, do we call him Winston Smith, or do we call him Barry Young? Well, I suppose we can call him Barry Young now. Um, now so that... Barry Young had been sitting on this and working on this database for months and months and months and months and months. He's obviously can handle a database because that's his job. So he obviously could do a query such as you suggest. I mean, he's got that ability, right? Clearly, that's his job. He's not like he's not like so. he's yeah. not like the guy that comes in and um, drops the milk off. He's a man that's familiar with extremely large databases and manipulating them clearly. Yeah. And about that, there can be no doubt, given the arrival of the police. Um, did you find it a bit odd? There's odd things, too, and we're going to jump around a bit because we're, we're, the data itself is what we should be focusing on, but there's a whole lot of personalities and odd things in this. Did you find it a bit odd that he was interviewed 
under a fake name fully in view. It was a bit strange. Yeah. Yeah. I I did wonder if the person in view was an actor at one point, but um, he looked quite, he looked genuinely traumatised. He looked extremely troubled. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I don't, you know, I think as it's transpired, I I think um, we, you know, we were looking at the right guy, but, you know, all that's, yeah. So what do you do if you're working away on a database and you are doing the payment system and you're looking at this database and you see significant deaths occurring somehow or you get wondering and so you do the query that you suggested and you get that result such as has been presented to us, we don't know whether it's correct or not, but clearly Barry Young believed it to be true. And he was clearly deeply troubled and deeply affected by it. Well, you would be, wouldn't you? Mm. Mm. And he may be quite possibly the only person that's ever looked at this database in this way. Steve Kerr said an interesting thing in one of his interviews or on Twitter where he said, No one can receive this information because to do so makes them culpable. So, all right, yeah. Politicians and chief executives, once you've seen this, so he says they won't they won't receive his letters. They won't because one you can't deny that you've had the information presented to you. So it may well be, contrary to what I would have thought, that no one in an official capacity has done the simplest of things and looked at this. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm very light on detail at the minute because I only discovered this this morning. But so we we had the Independent Safety Monitoring Board, which you'll be familiar with, mm-hmm. and you know they were charged at um with with looking at at the harms from the vaccine and and you know any um adverse event reports particularly all fatal reports were taken to the ISMB or they were supposed to be for review. Now they disbanded in June of 2022. Um, and it, it was sort of very briefly said that their function was going to transfer to, I think it was MedSafe. Um, may have been the Ministry of Health, but from memory, I think it was MedSafe. Now I've just sort of stumbled across this, this, National Mortality Review Committee this morning, and they are charged with minimising avoidable deaths, apparently. Um, So it's the Health, Quality and Safety Commission. Have you ever heard of them? No. No, me neither. They've got a Māori name too. Um, So it, it, it looks like they're... They're sort of on the website. Their their brief is is fairly narrow. Um, 
they they review and report on child and youth mortality, family violence deaths, perinatal and maternal mortality, perioperative mortality. What what's that? Do you know? No. Me neither. Maybe it's got something to do with operations. I don't know. And then suicide mortality. So, but I believe because this is you know this is very much a work in progress for me because as I say, I only found out about that this this committee existed an hour and a half or so ago. But um, I believe that their scope has been widened. So the question I'd be asking is, are they looking at this issue and and with what sort of urgency and with what sort of public transparency? Indeed, indeed. Um, I mean, if they're charged with minimising avoidable deaths, you know, but you'd, isn't it? But isn't this isn't this part of the problem that the our government and our media and all those who are our betters telling us what to do and what to think? None of them has stopped and said there are two issues here. One is. We've got a person who has breached privacy, breached his employment contract, released sensitive data. Mm. We need to deal with that. The second thing is he's making extraordinary claims on the basis of this data. Now, you'd separate the two things out logically, and you'd say, okay, we need to deal with this employment thing. Now, He's no threat to public safety now. To, to an extent, he's done his crime, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but they had to pounce immediately like he's about to commit some other heinous act. And they're clearly going to go fully nuclear on him. And then they're at the same time busily reassuring us that there's nothing to see here. Mm, and mm. it's all misinformation. Oh, yeah. Now, this is the bit where I think, God, am I so down rabbit holes that I look at that and I think, now I'm terrified. Because yeah, I was reading about XSDS and all the rest of it, but here's a guy who purports to have data. Steve Kirsch has looked at it and says, yes, there's a problem. Other people are questioning the data, but they're not saying there's no problem. And then we have this political knee-jerk response from our new Prime Minister down and the Director General of Health, and they say, look, it's perfectly safe. Mm -hmm. Well, how can they be saying that? Because they haven't looked at the data that he's been looking at. Clearly they haven't had time. I mean, this is... This is well, they basic. have the time because it's their day. Oh, yes. They've had years. Yes. <laughs> yes. But they haven't had time since it went public, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't they just say, look, there's nothing to see here. We're quite prepared to put this data on a public server. We'll anonymize it, and you can torture it to your heart's content. Well, um, Exactly. It looks, you know, it, this is going to, I think, make a lot of people that were potentially not concerned before a bit concerned. Yes, I and concur. 
I I I think it's I mean I, I don't know much about the law at all, very little, but I would be really, really interested to hear um a lawyer speak on the employ the employment court and um and how that would work in conjunction with, you know, now the police are involved. Mm. Because I've had a little bit to do with um, supporting uh, cases in the employment court and uh, over the time of um, the mandates. And it was always sort of tricky to get things like health and safety legislation considered because they would say that's not our jurisdiction. And they're only concerned with matters of employment. So stepping back a bit, somebody like Wince, uh, Barry Young, who's who is concerned there's a risk to public health and he may have some information that is in the best interests of the public to be public, he's got the option to, you know, raise the concerns with his superiors. But if he's not supported, yes, then because um, that all that whistleblower protection act, you know, protects a whistleblower as long as they go through certain steps and a certain process. So if you you find you're not supported, and and I don't know what he has done in that regard, but if if a person is not supported in that process, what option is left open to them if they genuinely believe? that in all good conscience they can't stay quiet, then I believe that there's a, um, a sort of a justification under mm-hmm. sort of the common law yeah. of the Crimes Act to sort of say, well, well... You would think so, and it's an interesting thing when you say genuinely believe, because it doesn't actually have to be right necessarily. I mean, what 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 is your obligation... If you're sitting there in an organization, let's take the extreme, well, let's just take this exact example. He's sitting there on this data. He believes, he genuinely believes that it's causing people to die unnecessarily. He believes that's what his data shows. He might be right, he might be wrong, but he genuinely believes it. That vaccine is still being administered. So what do you do? What what do you do, first of all, in good conscience? Well, in good conscience, you've got to do something. Also, legally, I would suspect you've sort of got to do something. Now, when, as you say, when it comes to the whistleblowing legislation, there's a long and complicated process that you go through where you talk to your manager and all the rest of it. But he's got a potential defence to that because he can say the whole organisation was nutty on everyone getting the jab. Mm. I knew as soon as I questioned it, I would be fired. And of course, the nutty response from the Director General and the police proves his point. 
He he couldn't have followed the whistleblower process if he'd tried. Mm. Mm. He's decided, I guess, I mean, arguably, to do this in the best possible way. And as you and I are saying, the really peculiar thing is that there aren't more. Mm. Mm. And we haven't seen the analysis of the data pouring forth from the agencies that are supposed to be monitoring this to counteract it. There's been a deafening silence, right? Mm. I mean, that's odd, don't you think? Well, it it's troubling. It's not out of character. No. Is it? Because... But haven't wanted to give us any information the entire way through. And this means that someone like Barry Young is right, if he thinks like he thinks, to be troubled and, Mm. quote, paranoid. Mm. Because his paranoia was well-founded given events. Yeah. And, I mean, he is still asking, I think, genuine questions. Like, you know, when he said... Why so many deaths from mobile sites? You know, that seemed to me to be a, he was asking a genuine question. He wants to know. Yeah. Wants it to be investigated. Um, I mean, you know, and when you sort of try and answer that, you know, you try and sort of think about what that could be. I mean, the mobile sites are going to be, have a higher vaccinating, a higher proportion of the elderly and the frail, um, you know, we know that this product is unstable if it's not stored properly. Um, there are these suggestions that, the you know, if the lipid nanoparticles aren't stored properly, they can go on to deliver unsavoury outcomes. And you've got more sort of transport issues with the mobile sites. Mm. Um, so... Um, you know, he he he. I think just really wants this to be investigated. I mean, interestingly, when we look back through um, the ISMB minutes in twenty twenty one, they spent a number of um, meetings in through sort of June through to August, around the middle of the year, talking about. Um, the frail elderly, Um, and I think you can sort of see in there that they may have seen more deaths in the frail elderly post-vaccination than they were expecting. Mm -hmm. I mean, at one point, somebody even questioned whether the mortality, they're talking about the frail elderly here, and whether the mortality rates of observed and expected were switched on the data set. They wanted it to be the other way round. Um, And, you know, towards the end of their discussion, they, they, you know, started talking about, you know, perhaps it's important to have a um, a, a risk-benefit analysis done on, you know, on on the frail elderly, the individual risk-benefit analysis. And, you know, um, they, the risks need to be talked about with the elderly and their families. Now, this is by who? 
the ISMB, the Independent Safety Monitoring Board. And when? Uh, July, sort of around mid-2021. So they so right before the rollout um to the to the wider population. So remember they did the the sort of the border workers under mandate. Um, and then they sort of offered it to the healthcare workers um, and then the, the pregnant and elderly people first. And then it opened up in sort of August, September of 2021 pretty much to everybody else. So around the time that they're discussing this, it, it's sort of as they are vaccinating the, the frail elderly. So you got this information under an Official Information Act request? Someone did, yeah. I just found it on FYI on the site. Isn't that alarming? So they say, you know, the vaccine's been given to a large number of people in rest homes and hospital-level care, and deaths in older individuals are likely to be due to comorbidities rather than the vaccine, okay? But they'd already said sort of back in June that um, they need to be careful about attributing death to natural causes in the frail elderly um, and that it's possible that an immunological response to any vaccination could be a physiological stressor that in the frail elderly could result in death. They they discussed this back in June. Um, and in, then read that bit to me again where they think the data's back to front. Uh, um, uh, da, 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 da. Oh, so there was a question, this is from somebody on the committee, whether mortality rates of observed and expected were switched on the data set. Jeepers. Um, the, yeah. And then, made the, so they do this thing called um, is it rapid cycle analysis, I think, um, which is sort of a, a tool to kind of see if there's an effect. And and so they must have been seeing more deaths than they were expecting, is I think what we can take from these minutes. So somebody, some genius, made the comment that was it worth reducing the rapid cycle analysis from t um, to two to three days from one week to see if they could get a different outcome. Oh, my goodness. So they're not going to get a different, you know, they're, they're just not going to save people's lives. It's just going to make it look better. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, you know, they, 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 I think we can read in these minutes that they... Um, they travelled. They were troubled by what they were seeing happening in the frail elderly. So I am, I'm, I'm very interested if we get back to what hasn't been said yet. I've actually asked Steve Kirsch this question via Twitter: Is you know what this this is you know the biggest um, paper dose system payment system, but it's not the only one. What does it cover? Because it would be really good to know, for example, does this cover um, mobile sites? Does it cover vaccination centres and pop-up vaccination centres? And perhaps 
Is there another system that covers um, uh, primary care providers and hospitals? Because that would make sense, right? They probably had that infrastructure already. Mm. Mm. But, and maybe the existing paper dose systems that doctors used and hospitals used places that were always giving vaccinations, maybe that couldn't extend to the sort to the sort of um, capacity mm. it was going to have to deal with when they were doing a mass vaccination of the population. So perhaps they then had to build another system that would cover all of these other sites that were unusual and different and 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 unique to COVID vaccination. So that's that's at this point, that's sort of my hypothesis that I'm kind of working on, but it is just a hypothesis. But it's a really important question because we need to know sort of the it doesn't explain, doesn't that doesn't explain though, does it, why they're saying, you know, it it it's only got it doesn't have like dose one, dose two, dose three for the same person. Yes. But I got so my hypothesis doesn't explain that, so it's still very much a working hypothesis. Yeah, it, it from a bigger picture point of view, it comes at a very good time. Yeah, because in the bigger picture, right now, in the next few days, the coalition, the new government that we have, has to make a decision about their inquiry. Do they? Like, so yes. what's what's so why do they need to do that? Because they've all said that they'd widen the terms of the inquiry. So they've got to make a decision about do they take the existing commissioners, the existing world commission that's been set up, and add a few things to the terms of reference. Or so what, what's the time cons what's what's causing the time constraint? Oh just I guess just before Christmas, get it going. Yeah. Or do they fire the Royal Commission and start a new one? Which would be, I think, logically what you'd do because this has been a hand-picked Royal Commission from the previous government. Mm. But more importantly, it puts on the agenda of the inquiry the very questions that you're asking and posing. They can't now ignore the Barry Young release. Mm. And what I find so remarkable about it is we don't see the Ministry of Health Chief Executive, I guess that's who it was talking, we don't see her saying, oh, yes, we've been right through that data. We're doing it on a daily basis. And it shows they're safe and effective. Yeah, Te Whatuora's chief, chief executive, she is. Health New Zealand, yeah. But she's not saying that, right? She's saying, oh, no, the vaccines are safe and effective. It's like some, you know, religious belief that if you keep saying it, it'll yeah. come true. Yeah. And this is what they've been saying. It's going back right back to the Pfizer trials. She's not saying, of course we've analysed this data because mm. I think you and I suspect that if they have, it's not good because they would have released it. Or they're so scared to that they've shut it all down and aren't looking at it. 
And this is what got Barry Young up. I mean, however you look at it, this stuff has to go on now and be questioned by the inquiry. Mm. You can't mm. have an inquiry going along and ignore Barry Young mm. or Liz Gunn or Steve Kirsch mm. because he's going to say that doesn't work for yeah. me. And if they look, they will see that something is up. Yes. It might it might not be to quite the extent that um, Steve Kirsch is saying, 12,000 deaths, excess deaths. Yeah. But, um, it, you know, th- there's definitely something causing New Zealanders to die in excess. Mm. And, you know, this is clearly um, one of the major suspects. So mm. it needs to be investigated. Look, one of the things that was, was interesting about um, what he said um, was he talked about the sort of five or six month lag that he'd observed. Steve Kirsch. Uh, I think I think it was Barry Young. Okay. Steve, yes. Kirsch, Steve Kirsch may have referred to it too. Yes. And um, the, the, many moons ago, um, must have been sort of about sort of second quarter of um, maybe twenty twenty two. There's a there's a, a American woman, um, her Twitter handles Texas Lindsay, and she oh was, yes, yes, she's she great. Was doing, she was doing these videos of different countries, and she'd sort of they'd, they'd pan through the um, the vaccination doses, and then they would, and then her video would sort of pan through. Um, oh, sort of on a great in a graphical representation, the video would show you the the vaccine vaccination doses, the numbers on the graph over time, and yep. then you would see the excess mortality. And it was done through our world and data um, using that as a tool. And then she yep. would overlay the two on the same graph. So different y-axis, but you could see I, I I've got it saved on my desktop, and I call it Twin Peaks because <laughs> you can see there's this there's these two M's, and you can you can see people dying in excess in New Zealand in 2022 in the same pattern as they were vaccinated in 2021. So mm. around sort of August, there's this great big peak and then it dipped down and then it must have gone up again around sort of super stupid Saturday. So you see this M effect. Yeah. Now, fast forward five or six months to February, March, different axis, but you see the same M in the excess deaths. And so that was sort of, for me, the first I'd heard people talk about this lag overseas, but that was the first time I think you could potentially see that effect in New Zealand. And, of course, with this data, they will have not the total response. They will have the individual response. Mm. Vaccinated day Mm. X, died day Y. Oh, my goodness. So and and he you know when, oh, Barry Young is saying there's a I think he said six months but it was five or six months effect. Um, I um when I was a member I, I don't know if this is relevant but I don't like talking when I'm interviewing but this is just interesting 
Uh, I was many years an MP, and I became a famous person to leak to. And I realized that there were certain rules. One was I never disclosed my sources, so everyone was always safe. I went out of my way to protect my sources. And I always used it once I'd worked out that it was bona fide, is that the word? That it was kosher, it was okay. And so, man, every week I was being leaked stuff. One famous time I got a whole, C back in the day, CD-ROM off a treasury computer of all their forecasts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, chief executives and ministers would go absolutely bonkers. Every time I got a good leak, they would call for a big inquiry and spend $150,000 trying to catch the leaker, which they invariably didn't. Although in one famous case, they did, and he was summarily fired, but happily so. And he was leaking to me about the financials on Kiwi Bank. And all of that, never were the police involved. Only once was there an injunction. So I'm talking dozens and dozens and dozens of high-level leaks at the front page news and TV news. Only once was there an injunction, and that concerned that was Kiwi Bank took the injunction to stop what they thought was commercial information being released, which had been leaked to me. So it wasn't the government. It was actually like a commercial bank owned by the government. Now, I have never, ever seen a reaction like this. Mm. You could say that this is more significant in one sense that it potentially involves leaking Rodney Hyde's and Kathy Jamieson's vaccine status. Right. Or, 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 you know, there's personal information in there. But, like, I was thinking about this. And if, if somebody sort of corners you in a dark alley and says, I've got a weapon here and <laughs> I'm going to use it on you and you've got a one in a thousand chance of being killed, um, or a one in, say, 500 chance of having a severe adverse, adverse event, or I'm going to leak your anonymized health data. <laughs> What's your choice? What, what would you pick? <laughs> it's you a know? great way of looking at it. But, you see, I've never seen a response like this, ever. Ever, ever, ever. Not, not even close. Because what? Back in the day, they were smarter, and they knew while they were privately. God, I've had, I had a chief executive, secretary of the treasury, literally going spastic, and I, well, I shouldn't use that word, but like arms and legs and yelling and jumping up and down in a hallway, um, in the beehive, beside himself, over me knowing what was going on in the Treasury before his minister did. Now, 
They were angry. Trust me, ministers were furious with me. They'd be abusing me. Nothing like this. Mm. this this is next level and the response is peculiar because the responses are misinformation feeding conspiracy theories what the hell yeah to, yeah, so it was on the so when it was on the news, it was that a Tefatu or an employee has leaked health data to spread misinformation online. And if you hear that, even if you're sort of not aware of, you know, or if you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the dangers of why would anybody stick their neck out like that? Yes. Read misinformation. If you're going to take the risk that comes with doing it, you have got you're not doing it for mischief. No. You know, so so that was a nonsense statement. And the man who read it out on the television should add it to the list of things he should be ashamed of. Yes. Because um, the missing Misinformation isn't a crime yet. Well, no, that's sort of not the, that's sort of not the point because you know presumably leaking health data is. But, is the point? But you know, can it be just? Is there a you know? It's sort of like you're walking and to use another analogy, you know, you're walking through the city and you see a young child come, you know, it's, it's separated from its mother and it's about to run in front of a bus. So you grab this child by, you know, in an, using your instinct by the hair and pull it back and you dislocate its neck or do something, you know, you've injured that child, you know, that that's a crime presumably. Mm. But it's justification because it was an instinctive thing to save its life. And this is the point about our Barry Young. Yeah. Do we know his status at the moment? Employment status? No, his whether he's free to wander this earth at the moment. Uh, no, I don't know that. I've been too busy trying to sort of find out about um, other, other things in relation to his, uh, you know, and to his, so I don't know. I don't know. It's all gone very quiet. It's um, where would you suggest people go that are listening to us try and make sense of this? Where should they go to get the best summary information about what Barry Young's released? Um, it's all a bit. Um, so Igor Chudov, is it? Her on Twitter. He's yes. He's a journalist, so he he writes he writes well. He does a Substack because um, oh. he's super critical of the data, right? Well, he was he was, but he is, his Substack today was um, so he's he's like all of us. It's like okay, all right, now now we've got more. So so there were some some sort of glaring omissions in the. In the in the first unveiling of it all, you know uh-huh. the question like it's okay, you know it's not a complete data set, but so what? Why is it not? And so, um, 
as you say, it hasn't been sort of, it's been sort of prepared a little bit on the fly and on the hoof, I suppose. So the information's kind of rolling out um, over time. And and Igor was a lot more, like he, he did a substack this morning saying, I believe this guy's genuine and now I have more information as to why it's only a partial data set. Um, so, yeah, it's hard, hard to, to answer that. At RCR probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen to RCR. Yeah. You're, you're going to have the key players' commentary as it unfolds? Well, this is good. So this is a very good analysis to go and see. It's Igor Chudov, I-G-O-R, that's his first name, Igor, um, Chudov, C-H-U-D-O-V, and if you Google that in Substack, Google will take it to you. And he's got two newsletters that he's put out that you can access. One is I analysed the leaked New Zealand whistleblower data and suggest to be wary of it. Uh, that was on December the 3rd. And then he's done an update, uh, New Zealand whistleblower. And what he's doing here is he's spoken to Steve Kirsch. Uh, he's had his questions answered. And now he's saying, hmm, there might be something in this. And he's hoping that this data um, will yield useful information. And um, he said at this point, I believe that Barry Young was more likely to be sincere than insincere in his intentions and actions. This clarification is vital since I questioned the sincerity of the person who possibly risked his life to disclose data. Isn't this amazing that New Zealand has sort of become the epicenter of this work in this analysis and what's happening to Mr. Barry Young. Mm. It really I is. mean, he, he might be well named as Winston Smith. Isn't mm. that the character in, um, is it Brave New World? Um, 1984. He's the mm. character in 1984. Oh, my goodness. So if I go Chodov, so I expected this to happen. Steve Kirsch did his analysis, experts weigh in, yeah, 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 question, 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 question. I expected Steve Kirsch to start backing off. He's a smart man, got a reputation to protect. He doubled down. He says, no, 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 this is good. And it's actually the experts who are, when I say experts, people are experts, you know, people we follow, are now saying, hang on, now that I've spoken to Steve, now that I've seen this data, oh, I'm starting, there may be something here. Mm. And, of course, Igor is putting a lot of weight on the fact that Barry Young's been arrested. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Yep. Oh, my goodness. The eyes, of, the eyes of certain parts of the world are definitely on little old New Zealand. Um, they definitely are. Okay, Kathy. Well, thank you for that update. Uh, that's where you can go, ladies and gentlemen, to get a quick overview. It's extraordinary. We know that this data is in databases all around the world held by governments. None of it's being released. They're still relying on trial data from Pfizer. Unbelievable. Uh, we have people like um, Kathy here, who's very, very good at seeing patterns and analyzing data and going through. Sorry. I do have some more patterns if you have got a oh. little bit more time. 
you when oh. you say that, I just sit back inside. Tell me. Well, this uh, well, one a couple more points, one more pattern. Um, so he talked about the six-month lag, which we've discussed, but he also talked about sort of this these regionals, this regional effect. And where he sort of said that he went through these sites, two in Auckland, two in Wellington. I think there was one in Matamata, and then you sort of, but they were primarily in the South Island. So when he did his presentation, I think that these are the these are the top his top twenty sites um, for deaths. Um, the the mortality rate after the vaccine. So there were there was about ten in Christchurch, couple in Ashburton, Geraldine, Dunedin, Gore, and in Bacargill. Now my ears pricked up because in the in the sort of analysis that I've been doing, I've been saying to people, have you noticed an effect in the South Island? Possibly more injuries in the South Island because. I didn't have anything concrete, but I was just getting a sense. And um, I know that certainly, um, you know, in the the funeral business, there's definitely regional differences. Mm. Um, and... So, like, for example, apparently um, in Palmerston North, which interestingly wasn't mentioned in, in Barry Young's analysis, but that deaths are up there about 25% according to the data that Internal Affairs releases, which goes to Stats New Zealand, but it also goes to the funeral directors. And you know there are funeral directors that in 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 that area that would do sort of three fifty to four hundred funerals a year that are sort of doing in the realm of three hundred in six months. Um, they're all having record years. So what I haven't done yet, but what I'm wanting to do is have a look and see if there were mobile sites in. Palmerston North, because if there's not a lot of mobile sites servicing Palmerston North, as opposed to other parts of the country, that might explain why Palmerston North's been left off. What? Because he didn't have the data for that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, we don't know. We don't know what's going on because we don't have enough information. But some pieces are starting to sort of start to well, fit together from multiple sources. Well, again, it couldn't have come at a more opportune time because this government's got to decide, well, do we open this up and point the finger or do we try and shut it down and become culpable? And, of course, Winston Peters, he's made a big play on all of this, so he's got to stick up for a proper inquiry yeah. into this. Yeah, yeah. We and, haven't and yeah. We we ha you know this isn't going to go away. Oh my goodness! So and then the other thing was he said you know Liz Gunn asked him you know so is this just Pfizer? And he said 
well, we have Pfizer and Moderna in New Zealand. And I thought, well, no, we don't. No, we don't. Um, and I just thought, oh, he's just made a mistake because we have primarily Pfizer um, and we have a, we had, don't believe we do anymore, a small portion of AstraZeneca and then we got Novavax. But then he went on to say, you know, we have 119 batches, different batches. And I thought, well, when I've looked and I've gathered together as much as I can, um, I've come up with about 80 Pfizer batches over the three, um, the sort of the age groups, the infant, the paediatric and the adult. And I, I don't sort of take a lot of notice of the AstraZeneca and Novavax batches because um, there won't be enough of them for, for me to use in my work. But 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 the difference between 119 and 80 is nearly 40. So so I thought, well, maybe we do have Moderna. And I looked. And in June of 2022, um, they gave provisional consent to Moderna and there's a product detail for it. And there was even an amendment made in um, early 2023 to the documentation. Now, that's the first I've ever heard of it. Now, just because we've got that sort of regulatory material doesn't mean we actually have the physical product. Yes. And, you know, um, just because a, a, a vaccine's provisionally approved, they need to... Um, cabinet need to sort of approve approve it and back in 2021 we were sort of getting much pomp and ceremony and fanfare about cabinet approval of COVID vaccines and we haven't heard anything about cabinet approval of Moderna but there's been some quiet work going on in the background for a well, quiet as far as I'm concerned because I haven't heard about it and I tend to keep my ear pretty close to the ground and um, so I don't know if we if we have any and if we've been using it, but I just thought that that was interesting in light of him saying we have Pfizer mm. and we have Moderna and also talking about 119 batches when that's significantly more than I thought we had. So I've got some questions there too. Great. Well, there we are, Kathy Jameson, our data nerd, Wonderful, wonderful smile, beautiful eyes, twinkling, full of fun. One of my favourite people to interview. And able to spot these patterns, caller, you're going to have to stay near your phone because there's going to be more coming and we need your insight to be explaining this. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And we've been talking about this release of data by Barry Young and his arrest and what this data means. Well, stand by, because this is what they would say in the legacy media, a breaking story. More to come. Oh, we're going to find out so much. And in the meantime, can all of us that pray, pray for Barry and his family? And of all of us that don't pray, have them in your thoughts. 
because he is going through a very, very, very tough time. The entire weight of government just fell on top of him. And I'm sure he would have known that it would be bad should he release this data. He wouldn't have been unmindful of the consequences. He would think I'd probably lose my job. I don't think in his darkest moments he could imagine what has happened. I certainly couldn't. We're living in a totalitarian age where to tell the truth is to be arrested, where to provide data that suggests something could be dangerous that's being touted is to be arrested. They don't deal with the argument. They deal with the people. Oh, my goodness. Send me a text, 2057. Email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. Thank you so much for having me in your home and for listening. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Something different, rather than me doing the interviewing, it's me being interviewed by Christine Smith. Uh, lovely lady, she interviewed me earlier. Um, she runs a very successful podcast for homeschoolers. And she had me on to talk about what do you do to be a have a future career as a politician? Oh, my goodness. And so I tried my best to answer her questions. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, remember, you can send me a text, 2057, email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. I think you'll enjoy this. I certainly did. Rodney, I'm absolutely delighted to be interviewing today. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Oh, well, I feel I, I wouldn't hesitate because I'm a big fan of homeschooling and I think the kids that are being homeschooled are very blessed. And anything that I can do to help, I'll be there. Oh, thank you. For those who, listeners who don't know you, like especially our overseas folk, can you just introduce yourself and then move into why you became a politician and how you became a politician? Mm. Is that a good place to start? Sure. Uh, my name is Rodney Hyde. Uh, I grew up in a little town in North Canterbury, New Zealand. Uh, my father was a truck driver and my mother was a housewife like everyone was in the 60s when I grew up. I found it very boring growing up, and I found school, looking back, especially boring and quite hateful. And I realized it's because I wasn't like the other kids, and I could see through their bullying of each other and the games that kids would play, and I found sitting in a classroom quite tedious. And I got a bit older, and all I wanted to do was to leave school and get a job driving trucks and buy a car so I could have a girlfriend. And it's funny when you think back on it, that that was my drive. I just wanted to have a girlfriend, a friend. Uh, my father said I can't drive trucks. I had to get an apprenticeship first. And I went off to the nearest place I could get an apprenticeship was the North Canterbury Electric Power Board. And I walked in there by myself. 
at 14 and said I wanted a job as an apprentice. And they explained it to me very kindly, some gentleman. And he said, but for the first year, you'll be sweeping the floor on such and such an amount each week. But if you do another year at school, that year gets deducted. And I worked out that I'd make more money driving trucks at the weekend and in the holidays than I would as an apprentice. So I thought I'd do another year at school. So I turned up to the sixth form, and I was the only one that I knew. I didn't know anyone in the sixth form. I, I got quite a shock in the sixth form. And then the second shock was I went in for a test, and I failed it, or I didn't do as well. I almost failed it. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm going to fail. It never occurred to me. I'd never done homework in my life. I'd never looked at a textbook. So I quickly got a textbook and sat down and started reading it. And I fell in love with knowledge. And I started reading the, the textbooks and summarizing them in little notebooks. And I couldn't get enough of it. And the beauty of science and mathematics just hit me. I couldn't do anything else. And discovering how flowers worked, how DNA worked, how cells worked, natural selection worked, how the world around me worked. And I announced I was going to be a scientist. I worked towards going to university. And I turned up, I became an environmentalist because I read that we were running out of resources, which seemed logical to me, and that we were polluting the planet. And so all of this had to stop. And I went off to university and, oh my goodness, I just fell in love with university to be sitting in these lecture rooms where knowledge was just pouring forth from a lecturer. And you could go to this vast library and just sit there and read. And I'd go to the library when it opened and I'd be there till it shut. And I'd get annoyed because I just read. And then at the end of my, I decided that I wanted to be a molecular biologist and be Watson and Crick who uncovered the double helix. I just thought that they did. They had this moment when they were a product in a way of DNA and its evolution. And this product of DNA saw the structure and how it worked. And in that moment, they were these two sentient beings on Earth that saw the secret of life. And to me, that was the most amazing thing. And I wanted to be them. But I felt the planet was being destroyed and that I had to study ecology to save the planet. And I worked driving trucks through university and then at my final year, I got a job working for the New Zealand Forest Service that was then called on the west coast of the South Island, measuring the regeneration of trees with half a dozen other students. And it was my first job, like, working for scientists. So I was so excited by it. And I went off to this job, and I was so bitterly disappointed because no one seemed to care. Like, you're supposed to start work at, say, eight. So I'd be there at half past seven. But... No one cared whether you were there at eight or half past eight. I realize now that's what working for a government is like. And no one really cared with our results because we were showing that trees were growing back after, obviously, they were cut down. Years and years ago, trees would grow back. But no one wanted to hear that because logging had to be stopped. And so there was no interest in the science of it. And the scientists that we were working for were totally disillusioned. And I thought, I'm doing all this work at university, for what? And I read a James A. Mitch in a book called The Drifters, and it was about how these young hippies traveled around Europe and had girlfriends, and I thought, that sounds like me. 
And so I saved up my money and I left for overseas the next year and spent four years working on oil rigs and traveling on my own across the world. And I came home and thought I got to make something of myself. And so I did environmental studies, a master's degree in environmental studies. I enjoyed that. I had a, the head of department sort of mentored me. I became his favored son. And so I stayed on at the university and taught and studied under his tutelage. And we had a falling out over Maori issues because he decided that this was the way to achieve environmentalism was to get into the treaty and marry things. This is in the 1980s. And they brought in, they employed a, a Maori man who brought in his spirits. And we were supposed to pay respects to these spirits in the lecture hall. And I refused because I said, this is a university. And it became so uncomfortable with this guy who I was the apple of his eye that I had to leave. Fortunately, I'd got interested in economics and the economics department thought that I was an economist. And they picked me up for a year to fill in for an absent lecturer. And so I taught economics, which I love. And I did that for a few years. And then um, I went overseas to study for a year in Montana, which I loved. And I came back and I realized now that there had been a cult, there was a cultural shift occurring in education because the students would come to me sometimes unable to read and I couldn't teach them because they couldn't read multiple choice questions. And that broke my heart. And then the other thing that happened was they'd say to me, I love your perspective on things. And I tried to explain to them that I wasn't teaching them my perspective. I was teaching them how great minds had figured out how the world worked. And I thought, how dreary is it to turn up to a university and sit in a lecture hall and think you're just learning what this guy's perspective is. And I realize now that was the culture wars, what we've called the culture wars occurring, that it was all just, there's no such thing as truth or the search for truth. And I became totally disillusioned all on my own with teaching at university. And so I left and I was lucky enough to pick up a job working for a very successful investment banker. I saw how big corporates worked and I loved it and how successful some of the most successful entrepreneurs in New Zealand worked. At that time, I wouldn't vote in an election because I despised everything about politics. And I met Roger Douglas who was a hero of mine because in the 1980s he stood on principle and reformed the New Zealand economy. He decided he'd write a book and he decided he needed my help. At the same time, MMP was being promoted as a thing to happen in New Zealand. And I opposed it. It was my first political action, really, was to oppose MMP, and we lost. And so we got MMP in. And we'd published Roger's book, and we decided that we'd form a political party. If, we, if we're going to have MMP, we'd form a political party, and we formed the ACT Party, and I was the first president. And my intention wasn't to stand because I thought I couldn't imagine anything more frightening or scary than being a politician. But I was helping out as president and organizing. In fact, I was the only one really doing it. And then it got a bit of go on it, a bit of support. And then someone challenged me to stand. And I've always been a person that if, you, if I'm scared of something, I think I should do it. And I loved it. And so I was a politician for 15 years. I was a minister. I was a leader of the ACT Party. I always felt like I was behind enemy lines, that politics was a world that was distasteful to me and full of trickery and power rather than goodness and light. And so I was always there sort of semi-observing, 
funnily enough, not caught up in it. And I decided I was only going to do three years and get out for the sake of my soul. But people were trying to sack me. <laughs> I tended to fight back. And then I thought, well, I'm not going to go. If these people want me all to go, well, I'm not going to go. And so I ended up becoming pig-headed. And I thought, I'm just going to ride this thing and as far as I can and learn what I can. And when I eventually got sacked by my own team because they need to replace leaders every now and then, I actually went quite happily. Since then, I've remarried. I have three young children. And I have lived a blessed life because... I'm away from that rat race, and uh, but I appreciate it, and I've learned from it, and I've always been a person who loves ideas and reading. I also have wanted to be a person who could do things and be practical, and so I'm managing to do both now. Does that help? Very much. That's a great story. Mm. I'm just fascinated that it wasn't your goal to go into politics. You just kind of, through circumstances, ended up there. I'm a terrible person because I've never had a goal in my life. Other than when I was very young, I wanted to be a scientist or, you know, I wanted to do this. I am still at that stage of wondering what I'll be when I grow up. A bit late, Rodney. <laughs> I know. It's like serendipity, and I think maybe I've made a wrong path. But what I do do is I take opportunities that come my way. I enjoy working hard, and I enjoy doing a good job. And I find if you do that, a lot of opportunities come your way. And I also like people funnily enough, individually, not en masse, as in politics. Again, if you learn how to get on well with people and work well and be honest, it's a abundant universe. I like that potential juxtaposition between still that potential nagging feeling that maybe you never actually had a goal and yet you're big on opportunities. But I think it's the perfect yin and yang, really. Yes, you can have a sense of a goal, but unless you have a, a really good measure of flexibility, you, you miss these little off-ramps that actually become mm. your goal was your opportunities and you live them. The cartoonist Scott Adams mm -hmm. is quite a philosopher and he does a podcast. And one of the things he says to succeed in life is not to have goals, but to have systems. Because if you have a goal, you always fall short and the goal becomes the point. And then you're all, even if you hit the goal, you're disappointed when you get there. Like, I'm going to get past this exam. And then you pass the exam and think, oh, did I do all that work just to get this? It doesn't feel great. A great example is to lose weight. You can set a goal to lose 20 pounds, but you won't. But if you say, I want to lose weight, and you put a system in place to change your habits, you will succeed. So you need systems, and I realize that I naturally incline towards that. So I'd have systems, like I would work hard, I'd do a good job. Uh, I never saw what I was doing at any one time, the be-all and end-all. I was always, you know, if opportunities came my way, I'd say, yeah, let's. And then the other thing Scott Adams says is to have a talent stack, which is it's beyond most of us to be the best in the world at one thing, to be the best violinist or the best rugby player. But... We can combine things and add talents together. So in his case, he was an okay artist and an okay writer and an okay comedian, but he could put that together and become a very successful cartoonist. And I think it's very easy to start off in life and think that you need to be the best at something. No, you don't. Because that last little bit is almost impossible. 
my wife was a very good squash player, but she could only get to say number 20 in the world, not number one. And so she felt a failure. But to be number 20 in the world is a huge success. But she did that to the exclusion of everything else to try and get there. I think that's very true. And that it's important for growing up to build a system for how you live your life, honestly, working well, being awake to opportunities, and building up your skill set. Steve Jobs, when he went to university, studied calligraphy, which is the art of writing, you know, with beautiful letters. And he said later that that was almost the silliest thing you could do in the modern age to study calligraphy, but it made all the difference to the PC because he developed the user interface with all the different fonts. And so there's all those funny skills that you can pick up that can have a dramatic impact on you. Everything like that should be an opportunity. One of my mistakes early in my life was if I wasn't going to be the best at something, I would give it up because you think, well, you know, I'm not going to be the best singer or the best musician, so I won't do that because I can always get a CD and play it. And I regret that because it's not the point to be the best. It's the, the point is to be a well-rounded person with a lot of talents that you can use to live a, a good quality life. So that's what I teach my kids. You know, it's not important to be the best skier or the best violinist or the best at this or the best at that. It's, it's to have the skill and the appreciation. And in fact, to be really good at something becomes a curse. Because if you're a young person growing up and you're really good at something, that becomes your thing and you get rewarded and appreciated for it. And you think this defines me because I'm a really good chess player or I'm a really good violinist. And you'll have people who will take advantage of that, coaches and parents, and they'll get bathed in the reflected glory. And then you might find that you're 19 and actually not good enough. Or worse, you find that you're 19 and you are good enough. And that's all you do ever. So I think it's good to be well-rounded and build up a lot of talents and skills because it makes you appreciate how wonderful the universe is without being too philosophical. No, it's not too philosophical because it, it, it's one of the, the parts of the homeschooling philosophy that I've talked about regularly on the podcast. So the, the, the homeschooling philosophy that we tended to follow was called the Charlotte Mason approach. Oh, yes, I'm familiar. Oh, good. Okay, well, then you'd be familiar with know a lot about a little mm. and a little about a lot which mm -hmm. to me, you you talking about that developing the yes. the opportunities, developing the skill set illustrates that beautifully, but it's put in a different way. And I think that's a been a, a good valuable gem we've had today. A nugget from you, Rodney. Thank you. I'll tell you another little nugget. When I was a politician, I had to sack one of my MPs. I had to sack quite a few, but one in particular I had to sack, or I felt I had to. It in, meant that I had to become an associate minister of education to take over her role. It came with responsibilities for gifted children and children with special needs. And I was mortified that I'd become a politician responsible for children with special needs because I thought, there's nothing I can do. How can I help? We've got no money. There'll just be more money for this and more money for that for these kids. And I delayed doing anything in that portfolio. And we had the Christchurch earthquakes and staff came to me and said, you're going to have to go down to Christchurch and see the special needs schools 
and special need kids just to see how they're getting on. And so I flew to Christchurch and we picked up a ministry official in our ministerial limo and he hops in and I said, how long have you been doing special needs? He said, for 30 years. And I thought, oh my goodness, why do you do that? Wouldn't you want to be with the kids that are going to be top scientists or top writers? This is my head thinking. And you're the person that got them there. Instead, you're with kids that if they manage to go to the toilet on their own, it's a huge success. And then I went into the special needs classroom and they couldn't get me to leave because I loved it so much. And from that moment on, every hour that I could grab, I would do special needs because I realized in that classroom there was more learning and more happiness than in any class I'd ever been in. I felt rewarded just helping. And I remember going to a school where there's a the bell went and there's a little primary school kid out in the playground dragging his body along on his arms trying to crawl. Kids all went off, teachers all went off to the classroom and this kid was left to fend for himself. And I watched him drag himself across the classroom, across the playground, up the stairs, across the veranda, into the classroom. His legs were useless and pull himself up onto his chair. And inside I just cried my eyes out. But it was a cry of not how terrible is this, but how wonderful is this? Because here was a boy who several times a day has to do that, just to sit in a chair in the classroom. And he did it day in and day out without complaint. I actually seriously thought about becoming a special needs teacher. And it's very easy to talk about success and how people look on social media and how wonderful it is and have a talent stack and all the rest of it. But it's got to be for you. And we've all got our shortcomings and our issues that we have to overcome. And it's whether we do it or not. And that boy did it. He meant more to me than the captain of the All Blacks. It was more inspiring. It was greater. It was bigger. It was better. Again, it's very important when we're talking, you know, because we tend to make things at school and for young people all about being successful. And successful can be getting across the playground, up the veranda and into your chair. You know, people talk about curveballs coming through. That has to be probably the most sparkliest Jimmy Nuggety curveball I've had in a while. Thank you. It's important to appreciate that it's looking around you and not setting your goals or achievements against others and comparing yourself to others because each of us have, is a gift of God and it's very important that we use our gifts and our gifts come in many forms. And our shortcomings and disabilities are very often our greatest gift. That is great. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. My youngest brother is severely autistic mm. and been in, you know, right from the very beginning in special needs schools and in and out of and I mean he was beyond being able to be integrated. He really is severely autistic yes. and, and and is in a uh, lives in a Christian trust residency that, that care for him. Being involved in that world and seeing the people that are working in that world too, it's it's like an instant mini life audit. Mm -hmm. You know, every time you see, you know, these kinds of things, it just kind of drags you back to to a spot of reality. And and what you said about you know being made in the image of God, but 
I think it really helps that no matter what you see a person as, whether they have special needs or, or, or hugely successful in a particular career or whatever, every single one of them is made in the image of God. Treat them as such. Absolutely. And we all have a purpose. Let me go back then and head back to your talking politics and how we can apply this to homeschooling. As I had said to you earlier, I'm creating a series to help homeschooling families, especially as their children move into their teens and they're starting to look at what they want to do later on in their life, how to help guide them, open opportunities, etc., during these years. Because most homeschoolers have this amazing privilege of being able to curate a curriculum, if you like, what their child does according to their strengths, their interests, without compromising basics. And it seemed to me that, especially given the state of our universities, how do you help them set up into careers and perhaps bypass the universities? So looking especially at the careers of of wanting to be in politics, how would you help a family decide sure. how to guide that? And then secondly, how would you help them guide that into bypassing it outside of the sure. union? I would definitely agree with you about the universities. I would ask anyone thinking of going to university nowadays, it was the greatest thing for me because it opened my mind, not closed it. But now they close minds, not open them. So I, unless you have a very specific reason, a very specific purpose, it's clearly defined, I would not go near a tertiary institute. Obviously, if you want to do medicine or become an accountant or something like that, then you go and do it, but you have that purpose clearly in mind. Don't go off to university because you can't think of what else to do. And in fact, not going to university now I see is a big plus when I look at a CV because you think, oh, that's good. Now someone that's done something, got a view and a purpose. I would discourage any young person from thinking about becoming a politician because I think polit a politics should not be a career and should not be something that you do for work. I see politics as extremely important and it's a wonderful, wonderful experience and it's a wonderful, wonderful, if you like, job and you learn such a lot, which I'll come to in a minute, and you see such a lot. You learn a lot about New Zealand and the world and you learn a lot about yourself. But I always think that being a politician should be after you have lived a life and achieved and you uh, got something to fall back on. There's nothing sadder to me than someone who's gone off to university, done a BA in politics, worked as a researcher for the National Labour Party, then go into a career as an MP and spend 30 years there. That's a dreadful politician by definition because they live to be a politician rather than live to serve New Zealand. Um, so I think it's important that you understand that politics is one of service. And of course, if you're a career politician, and we can name them, you know, Helen Clark, Phil Goff, Chris Hipkins springs to mind, as compared to, say, uh, John Key, uh, Bill English was almost a career politician. People have done things and then gone into politics. Sometimes for good, sometimes you think it might be to burnish their CV and, you know, say I was prime minister. But if you're a, a career politician, then I think you lack principle. And I'd get up every day as an MP and literally affirm to myself as I'd shave, because I had to shave every morning, that I was prepared to die that day. I don't think many politicians can do that. 
and therefore I don't think they can have principle. So I would love to go down in a, ray, in a, a hail of bullets politically for standing up for my principles. But if I felt that this was my job and all I could do, then I don't think I could have principles because I'd have to be ducking and weaving with you know where the political wind goes. And I quite often went out of my way to take high political risks, which everyone would advise me against because I'd be a shooting star or because it would be the end of my career or whatever. And it didn't bother me because I thought it was the right thing to do. And I think that's important. Important for our politicians, important for who you are. And I always try to be upfront about what I think. So that's the first thing. But that said, it's a fascinating business politics. I wish I'd got involved in politics when I was younger because I reluctantly became a politician. And then someone suggested that was helping me that I had to go door knocking. And I thought, oh, that sounds like the most worst thing in the world, like knocking on people's doors and saying, oh, hello, would you like to vote for me? You know, here's my card, you know. I thought this would be terrible. And I put it off and put it off and put it off. Do you know, I love door knocking. I loved it when no one knew who I was. And I loved it when they'd open their door in amazement because they knew who I was. And you knock on that first door, and you say, oh, hello, I'm Rodney Hyde, and I'm standing for Parliament. And oftentimes you'd get sent on your way, but sometimes people would just open up to you because they felt there was someone there that they could talk to. I learned such a lot in one street about people and situations. Amazing. I remember once knocking on a lady's door, and she said, oh, you're Rodney Hyde. You used to teach me economics. And I said, yes. Did you pass? She says, no, you failed me. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, this is terrible. She said, yes, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> because I wanted to do art, and my parents made me do commerce, and you were the one that failed me. And so I went off and did art, and now I'm working for this really flash creative business, and I'm doing so well, thanks to you, because you failed me. Things like that. And then people telling me their life stories. You'd knock on an old lady's door, and she'd start telling you these amazing tales of years gone by. Because they'd open up to you because you were someone they felt they could talk to. So what I would do is, if I had an interest in it, I'd go to my local MP. Well, if they weren't, if you like, someone you'd like to approach, you can go to a distant MP, you know, someone, if you're in a city, somewhere else, and you'd help them. I can't begin to tell you how many students have come into my world and said, I want to learn about politics. And I'd say, great. They'd start off literally stuffing envelopes and delivering them. Within a short while, they'd get to meet prime ministers and future prime ministers. And in a short while, they'd be given quite some responsibility. David Seymour was one such student that came to help. He's now sitting down to negotiate a government with Chris Luxon and Winston Peters. So he came to me as a university student and said, you know, I'm struggling a bit to understand why you say the things that you say. Could you sort of help me get my head around it? And I said, sure, but you... I'll do that if you deliver some envelopes for me. And so I mentored him. His campaign manager was likewise a young student that came to me to learn about politics. So I mentored both David Seymour and his campaign manager for the last election. And they spent a lot of time and very quickly became confidence. And they learned a lot about politics in a short while. So the way to do that is to go to see your local MP or a nearby MP and ask if you can help them, and they would welcome that. And you might discover, like a lot did, after a year or two, or three or four years, or some of them helped me for years, 
but went on to have glittering careers or glittering lives or become mothers or fathers and other and do other things other than politics. But boy, they learned a lot about politics. Richard Pebble started out at 17 helping his local MP and he would get down and tell stories about his local MP who'd been around a long time, started out with John A. Lee, who's a figure from history. Um, Norm Douglas was his name. He was Roger Douglas's father. Richard Pebble would tear up when he'd start telling you a Norm Douglas story. And that's how he got a start at 17, because he said to his father, who was a minister, I'm thinking about going into politics. Oh, well, that's easy. Go down to your local MP. What's his name? And see if he's got any work for you. So that's what you do. And you learn more by doing than by reading or watching the news. And you'll very quickly be into the inner sanctum of politics. It's extraordinary. So just go and ask is what you're saying. Just go and volunteer and become a member. Or you don't even have to become a member. I didn't care if someone was a member, if they would do an hour's work for me. There was one young lady who came to me and she was at university and she was a very good sportswoman and she'd broken her ankle and couldn't do her sport. And so she came in and she stuffed envelopes, take a thing, fold it, put an envelope, seal it. And she did that for a summer with her broken ankle and we're still friends. She's an expert on analysing politics. She was an expert on people, but she just watched what was going on and learned such a lot. So it is one of the easy things to enter in New Zealand because you'll be welcomed. They won't trust you immediately, but they quickly will. Okay, that's that's relatively... Well, not a lot of hurdles to, to get over, say. No, 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 no. That's It's mm. it's the easiest profession in a way to get into. <laughs> I think it shows. Um, no, there's no hurdles. Okay. And you're a citizen, right? And you're a person and you have immigrants come and help you. One young guy helped me for a long time while he was a student and then helped me. And I always had him doing extremely menial tasks. And I felt very guilty about it. And when I became a minister, they said, why don't you come to Wellington and help me? And I did it as a favour. He came down to Wellington and within a week was receiving rave reviews from heads of departments and the Prime Minister because he was so good at what he did. He would end up negotiating with the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff on my behalf. Oh, okay. And if he said X, I knew X it was. He was fantastic. And he literally, previous to that, I regarded him as someone who could do stuff envelopes. I use that as a metaphor for, you know, the things that need to be done around the office and out on the street for a campaign. And he was top flight and he went on to have a very successful career. He was highly regarded by John Key. So, you know, you get a young boy highly regarded by the Prime Minister for his work. You can't get that any other way, can you? But right from the beginning when you took him on, there was no kind of like, sense of entitlement about him he was actually prepared to go and do you know the mundane so that speaks to me of uh, a character that somebody already has but in in his willingness to do what you assigned him it was honing and building that character yes so why don't you speak to that with with those young ones who who have have an eye for working in, in the public politics whatever What's important to develop in, in someone's character and, and as the parent overseeing the opportunities their young one gets? Well, it's the characters that homeschooling does. It's self-responsibility and it's a bit of, what's the word, get up and go. Where you see a job that needs to be done, you go and do it, right? You don't wait to be told or 
asked. You can see that there's something that needs to be done and you find yourself doing it. But most importantly, it's honesty. Politics relies on a level of honesty like nothing else. And it's funny because we think of politicians as all liars and cheats, but it's actually the most honest profession I know because it totally relies on it. So you can imagine that you're a local MP and you have people coming in to help you. Well, you don't want them gabbing away that, God, when Rodney Hyde eats his food, it slobbers all down his chin. It's just gross. Or you've got no idea what I saw Rodney Hyde doing, right? That's, to me, someone who gossips like that is dishonest. They might be telling the truth, but they're not respectful. There's a, I don't know, they lack integrity. And so you have a lot of people helping you like that, but you'd never let them in on the inside because you don't trust them. And you know very quickly who you can trust and who you can't. And when they come in on the inside, you can sow them politics, warts and all, and the ups and the downs. And there's a huge thrill to that. You know, there's a huge thrill because, you know, they see MPs in tears and MPs on highs of excitement and then being trashed and the highs and the lows and the sitting around late at night eating and drinking to sort of get rid of a bad day. They're privy to that, but only if they're trusted. And it's the same in, in for politics, between politicians. There was a couple of MPs in my time who couldn't be trusted, and no one trusted them, and they could get nowhere. And every other politician could be trusted. So Helen Clark and I could work together because we could trust each other. Winston Peters and I could work together because we could trust each other. And I knew that if he gave his word or I gave my word to him, that was it. Because there's nothing else that will work. You can't do a contract. Mm -hmm. And you have all these behind-the-scenes negotiations with politicians from other sides. And you might be, you might almost be abusing, you get used to this, abusing each other or abusing each other's policies in public and debating each other. But that evening, having a heart-to-heart -heart talk and agreeing to something, I found that very hard at the start when I first turned up to Parliament. I was sitting having lunch with Michael Cullen. He said, oh, Rodney, come over and join us for lunch. Oh, my goodness, it's Michael Cullen. Oh, my God, oh, it's amazing. Like, oh, he could be the next Minister of Finance. And he's in London. We sat there and had a very nice lunch, and he chatted to me. Ten minutes later, he's in the house abusing me. But that was the theatre of politics. And he and I had quite a good personal relationship. Winston and I would trust each other, even though we were often at each other's throats politically. So it's to get that level of trust. It's the least Machiavellian business I know because it wouldn't work. You know, if, if, if the word goes out that an MP's word can't be trusted, that MP's toast. And it's the same for volunteer. So you need that level of integrity and honesty and trust. That is the key, key requirement. And then just be happy and enjoy, enjoy the job. Mm. So you go a long way with that. And the thing is, you might have two years helping your local MP, and that's all you ever do, literally a couple of hours a week. You'd learn more about politics than if you did a PhD. There's a whole lot of contradictions about politics too. People think politics is about being clever with words and talking a lot. It's the opposite. Politics is about listening and being humble. And the hardest thing I had to learn were those two things in politics, to listen. Very hard to listen. And it's very hard to listen to someone who you think isn't worthwhile listening to, but you learn to. And you learn to listen to someone who you might have thought of stupid 
or got crazy ideas and you find yourself interested in finding out, well, this person I don't think is very bright. I think they've got some wacky ideas. And you say to yourself, well, I'll just listen and try and find out why, because they're voters. And you learn to be the opposite of an expert. Most of the time I'd sit in my office, in my electorate office, and people would knock on my door. Well, there's another thing that volunteers get to do is help constituents. Someone will come, make an appointment to see you, come into your office, just walk in off the street, and they sit down and they tell you a terrible tale of woe. And you sit there and you listen to every word. And you say, well, I'm very sorry, but you know, there's, there's not anything I can do much to help you. And they said, they will say, I know, but I feel so much better for having told you. That's an extraordinary thing about you learn in politics is about other people's lives and other people's jobs and other people's businesses. It's not the glitziness of the beehive or the parliament, but it's going, you know, being shown around a business and how it works. People are excited to show you, well, their special needs school or what they're doing in their mainstream school with special needs students. And they show it to you. And in half an hour, you learn such a lot. That's what's amazing. And again, as a volunteer helping an MP, you'll get to see that. You'll get to see your neighborhood and your community in ways you you couldn't have foreseen. I, I took on, I had a local uh, Vietnam veteran who was suffering from PTSD. And I took him under my wing and helped him for a year or two. And once he'd got better and got the help that he needed, he became my most loyal volunteer. And he helped veterans all over New Zealand through me and through the relationship I'd built with Veterans Affairs and the minister, who was from another party. I got a great insight into military families and military life and war and battles and service through him. But at the same time, he literally could ring up the prime minister. What areas of academics would have to be balanced with that so that it makes them a caring, compassionate, good listener, but also intelligent and knowledgeable? Well, it's a great thing to have basic mathematical skills. And here I'm talking, you know, primary school. So it's great to always to be able to add and do sums in your head because funny enough, politics is a lot about numbers. And it's very, very good if you are engaged in public policy and politics to understand basic economics. And by that, I mean first-year economics, to read a, have a good grasp of how a market economy operates and why it beats a centrally planned economy, and to know such things as decisions are made at the margin, prices are incentives, incentives matter, everything's a trade-off, there are opportunity costs. If you knew those things going into politics, you'd be ahead of 99% of MPs in your understanding. You don't need a PhD in economics. In fact, that would become a hindrance because you'd become confused and confusing. But to understand the basics, like politicians talk like there's no budget constraint, like there's a money tree in Wellington. And when they're there, they'll just turn on the tap. They don't understand about trade-offs. They don't understand that if you make something free, people will want a lot of it. They don't understand that if you subsidize bad behavior, you'll get more of it. They don't understand that if you can commit a crime and not suffer a penalty or have a risk of a penalty, you'll get more crime. This is Economics 101. And you're sitting there with your civil servant advisors who don't get that either because they think that public policy is about moral posturing and having a good moral position on something. So they think that it's enough to care about the poor. 
And if we care about the poor and give the poor lots of money, this will solve the problem. Well, that's a bit like saying, I'm going to go and build houses and you don't know how to hammer a nail. You've actually got to understand what your choices are to assist the poor and to be able to think through the consequences of a policy. And if you can't do that, you will, you're no use to anyone. And so that's what would be very important. Basic economics, an introductory understanding of economics, and good arithmetic skills. And of course, I'm a big believer in the ability to write. I'm not talking about writing a novel, but I'm talking about being able to write cleanly and crisply. I just think that's a basic skill for life, but I'm astonished how rare it is. So I would put a lot of effort into being able to write in a way that communicates well. And then I would also say in that same way to read fast and to comprehend what you're reading. You should be able to write a letter on behalf of a constituent in three minutes sort of thing. Bang, bang, bang. And it's beautifully clearly written. And when someone receives that letter, they know exactly what the problem is and what's needed to fix it. They are a set of really practical, almost bullet point pieces of advice for a homeschooling family. They're great. Thank you. Well, well, they are, and they are the things that aren't happening in schools. You can go to school forever, mm. and you get all the moral posturing, but can't write a letter, can't do basic arithmetic, can't understand basic economics, and they're beautiful things for homeschooling. I agree with you, and I would say that for anyone, you know, anyone. So it's not like it's a special skill; it's like a people skill. I'll tell you another thing that I think is important is to understand how privileged we all are. And that you can't let your shyness and your lack of confidence get in your way of helping people. And I used to be shy. I never spoke in public until I became a university lecturer. And I was mortified at the prospect of it. I thought, how am I going to stand up in front of 400 students and talk when I know so little? And I read all these books about how to give a public speaking. I read one thing in one of the books, which said, it's terribly selfish to stand up in front of an audience and because you're embarrassed to put on a poor performance, that's selfish, that these people have come to hear you. And if you say, look, I'm terribly embarrassed, I'm just going to sit here and talk like this and not open up, you're a selfish person because they're there, right, to get the, and you've got to do your utmost to make it worthwhile to them. So don't put your little fears and insecurities out there. you just got to get rid of that, absolutely get rid of that. Another powerful thing, I, I, I get my kids to read, my oldest kids just read it. How to Win Friends and Influence People is a great book about how to interact with people, just basic rules about respecting them and learning their name and remembering their name. And nothing works better in life than how to respect a person that you meet with good manners. So that's another good skill, but also a political skill. Oh, Rodney, I have totally enjoyed listening to you and talking with you and hearing your experience and wisdom. And I think, well, I don't think, I know the homeschooling families are just going to so appreciate the time and you're generous. Oh, that's very kind. Well, I have enjoyed it immensely. I very much appreciate the homeschool network and homeschoolers everywhere. I think they're going to save us and they're the future. And if you ever need me or if there's anyone wanting to have me come on and help, they just need to let me know and I will be there. That's wonderful because I have got something I'd love to follow up with you on that. There you go. <laughs> I will be in touch, Rodney. <laughs> Thank you. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to www.realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. 
You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text on uh, 2057. Email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. Today, the MPs are being sworn in. Uh, I have been sworn in as MP five times. It's quite a marvellous feeling. Uh, Not about uh, being an MP. That too is marvellous. But the sense of history and occasion, because you realise this parliament stretches back hundreds and hundreds of years and the long process of everyday people having a say in how they govern their affairs by having a democracy and a parliament and not to be ruled by tyrants, by kings and tyrants, but rather to have parliament elected by the people as sovereign. And you're very aware of that with all the arcane rules that go with it and how marvellous it is, free speech, um, everyone equal before the law, all bound up with this parliament. And the idea of it being a like a pressure valve where people can go and debate and argue and talk about the issues freely so that we don't get pressures built up, which happens if you have tyrannical control and not a democracy. Last Friday, the Maori Party put out a press statement uh, not happy about being sworn in because part of the swearing-in process is you put the sovereign ahead of parliament. The the crown is a continuous, um, what the, 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 is provides that continuity that sits above parliament but doesn't interfere with parliament. It's part of the constitutional framework and makeup and history of the process. But they don't like swearing allegiance to the crown. And in fact, they say that the trouble with that is, and this is in their press release last Friday, that it puts the colonial power above the mana of the tangata whenua. And so that constrains the Maori from interfering with representing their people. Well, it doesn't, because you can be a Republican and still swear allegiance and within the system push for it. So what the Maori Party is saying is they don't want to be constrained by the system of parliamentary democracy. And of course, they're quite happy for everyone else to be constrained and not just just not them. They go on to say that the swearing this allegiance is, quote, not the equal partnership that was consented to by the treaty. But as we know, the, the this is entire fiction. This is just made up. The treaty wasn't about equal partnership. It was about equal citizenship for everyone. They go on. We will not allow anybody to treat us as second-class citizens on our own whenua. They're precisely being recognised as equal citizens with everyone. But, of course, in the convoluted way it gets looked at now, if you're not special, you're second-class. So we can't be equal. Oh, my goodness. Then they go on. And this is where it gets... I remember the happy days when if you disagreed with the Maori Party, you were called racist. Oh, that was so polite and benign. Now, what do you get called? Wait for it. Quote, Maori owe no allegiance 
to the genocidal legacy of the British Empire. That's right. Opposed the Maori Party, you're a genocidal maniac. There is no honour, quote, in the crown. It is tainted with the blood of indigenous nations. And its throne sits at the apex of global white supremacy. How bizarre is this? I mean, the entire thing of the treaty was to make Maori British citizens equal with British citizens. There's no white supremacy there at all. No attempt to wipe Maori out. In fact, the entire purpose was to stop Maori wiping each other out. Oh, my goodness. But no, 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 it's all tainted with blood. They go on in their press release. To the sovereign of England, we say history will judge whether you have the moral capacity to shoulder responsibility for your family's heinous legacy. What heinous legacy, actually? Quote, it is beyond you to restore its honour. The harm caused by your crown is now intergenerational and irreparable. Indigenous blood stains the throne you are on. Oh, my goodness. So not only was the crown in New Zealand genocidal, it's travelled down the generations, and so they're all victims because of King Charles's ancestors. And the throne that he sits on is covered in their blood. Goes on, we do not consent, we do not surrender, we do not cede, we do not submit. We, the indigenous people, are rising. We do not buy into the colonial fictions this house is built upon. Te Pata Māori pledges allegiance to our mokapuna, our whenua, and te tiriti o waitangi. We will continue to do our best by you, in accordance to our tikanga, amongst the monsters whose portraits still hang on the walls of Parliament. Of course, they have history completely inverted. But this is not my point. My point is they think this, they're leaders, they're teaching this, they have followers. This is what is being taught to young people in New Zealand. When the Crown in New Zealand is attacked for being genocidal, for having blood, for being at the apex of white supremacy, even while being sworn into Parliament, being duly elected in our democracy, we have a problem, a big problem. I don't quite know what we do about this because I fear this irrationality, this overinflated language. Of course, we can say all that's wrong with it historically, all that's wrong with it morally, all that's wrong with it. To genocide is a holocaust. And you dismerch the victims by tossing that name around. Racism is apartheid. Apartheid is apartheid. But we're so devalued, these words. These 
these so-called leaders have so devalued those these words just to further their argument and their and their rise to power that when we come to the true horrors, we actually don't have the words because they've been debased. Holocaust, apartheid, racism, all now debased. How do the real victims feel? But of course, what does it mean five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years from now when a growing population, young people growing up, have imbibed on this? They can't make it because they're victims. They can't make it because of genocidal maniacs in their past that have put them down and killed their ancestors and would kill them given half a chance. And does that suggest like a nation pulling together? or a nation pulling itself apart? Does it suggest a prosperous future or a poor, divided future? Does it suggest a peaceful future or a violent one? We're sowing some dreadful seeds here, this Maori party. I don't know how you nip it in the bud, but we do need to call it out. We do need to talk about it. We do need to point the finger. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Thank you for listening. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And oh, my goodness, it's been a great day because I've got two mailbags. Uh, this is, I've done the Israel Gaza, Gaza one, and here's my Juno one. Remember, you can send me a text 2057. You can email me at inbox at rallycheck.radio. Thank you, Rodney, for a well-balanced, informative program. I enjoyed it very much. It gave me plenty of food for thought, Linda. Well, thank you for listening, Linda. Well, the last two talks on the show today have been just great. Learned heaps. Uh, note for Rodney, New Zealand oil policy is currently being enacted. Repeal therapeutics products bill. Energy independence. Continue oil. Avoid any restrictive regulations on farming and industry. Scrap all race-based policies. Eradication of propaganda and media spin doctors. Liz Gunn was onto it. Kingsley. Yes, indeed. All those small parties made a difference. I have no doubt about it. So thank you for all the loyal uh, voters and supporters and candidates. You made a difference. It's how democracy works. Not just about getting into parliament. Hello, Rodney. I do believe that on the day you decided to believe in Christ, putting your trust in him, that the angels in heaven rejoiced. Not unlike his parents do when a newborn baby enters the world. Oh. Welcome to the family of God, brother. Your ministry into this nation will never be the same. No longer just political or merely focused on a few hobbies, gardening, etc., but now infused with a newfound love for Christ, more alive, inspiring, and devotional. I've noticed already in your interview with Paul, just a couple of days ago, that you're now exhibiting the peaceable fruit of righteousness. What you have to say is now more engaging and enjoyable. All credit to Jesus Christ and your faith to allow him to make good use of you at RCR. May it be for the good of this nation and to the glory of God. I was asked by Natalie yesterday as to what it means to be born again. She's definitely showing some interest, mentioning that you had recently used that term to describe what has been a profound change in your life. Attaches my own understanding of the term embedded in a few notes I made ahead of Natalie's interview. After reading it, please feedback to me anything you'd care to add from your own experience. Thanks. 
like the angels have done, I too rejoice, congratulating you on your recent step of faith into the will of God and into his calling over you. You born again, life in Christ, blessings, Christopher. Isn't that wonderful? DRCR team, I love your shows and your app and everything about your radio station. You have amazing hosts, amazing guests, and it's all positive and wonderful and intelligent and thought-provoking. Such a refreshing change in the strange landscape we find ourselves in. My favourite host is Marie Buskey. Isn't she the best? Not only does she have a fabulous radio voice with the most incredible warmth in it, but her intelligent conversations and questions make for such enjoyable listening. She's incredibly fair and open-minded and appreciative of everyone's contributions. Closely running second for all is Rodney Hyde. They also love Paul Brennan's shows, Nat, Natalie Cutler Welsh's shows. I've enjoyed many of Cam Slater's as well. You're also fabulous. I especially love Rodney's heart, which shines out clearly over the airwaves. Rodney's interviews are often so tender, and he gives the interviewee plenty of time to tell his story and show who they truly are. It's clear that Rodney's journey, especially over the last year or so, has involved him finding Christianity, which has been transforming for him. He mentions this part of his life often, yet I wonder if he's aware how often refused to Christian values ethics, asking his interviewers if they're Christian, when they have a particularly sensible or loving point to make, perhaps giving the impression that this is the ultimate achievement in life, and that if you're not Christian, you wouldn't couldn't have such values. Many of us don't regard ourselves as Christians, have wonderful values and ethics, having grown up in a loving, open-hearted, giving families, and we're very clear in knowing right from wrong. We're determined to be the best we can in the world and to bring as many people under our umbrella as we can to help them succeed. We have hope and we do whatever we can daily to help make the world a better place. Some of us have found that organised religion doesn't work for us, sometimes due to the exclusionary nature of some religions, such as those who reject homosexuality and dismiss those people from their families and churches. Or we've noticed the negative effect of formal religion on some people who were not allowed to be their truth selves. Or we've seen that the rules of certain religions and churches are so rigid that they won't, don't allow for many people to fit in. We feel that we don't need to attend a big building once a week with a con congregation to earn the right to regard ourselves worthy in the world. When Rodney brings the subject of Christianity up with so many of his guests and, the, and then is heard affirming them in their loving ethics because of their Christian values, it can leave a space for those who don't follow a religious doctrine to feel left out and feeling not recognised as being the decent people that they are despite not being Christian. I personally was introduced to the church in my childhood, but the rigidity and judgment didn't resonate with me. However, I've lived my journey trying my best to recognize our human connection regardless of race, creed, gender, or religion, to find our commonality. I try my absolute best to recognize people's true intentions with my intuition and honor that in all of us as best I can despite all my human flaws. It feels very clear as I listen to Rodney that he has only the best intentions at heart, and I feel sure that he would never want anyone to feel excluded. May this feedback I have given to be received with the love it's been sent with. Please keep on doing the amazing job you do, Team RCR. You're valued and so needed. Kind regards, Sharon. Sharon, that's lovely. And I do take it on board. And I appreciate it so much. Hey, Rodney, it's Phil. Years ago, one of my boys was standing on a bar stool with steel legs in his bedroom. It tipped up and one of the legs ended up deeply embedded in his left armpit. <laughs> Shocking at the time, he was all right after extraction of the stool and a bunch of stitches and ABs. Hmm. 
stitches and APs. Don't know what that is. But oh, I think that was when I was talking about my son getting hurt inside when they do all the dangerous stuff outside that worry you. And then he tripped and did a terrible facial injury on the coffee table. Who is the artist singing I'm So Proud of You during Rodney Hyde's show today? Not sure if that's the name of the song, but that was part of the lyrics. Keep up the good work at RCR. Great listening, Alan. Ah, that was Proud of You by Five Times August. Wonderful song. Hi, Rodney. I wanted to take a moment to express my admiration for your shows. While they can be sentimental at times, I appreciate how empathetic your interviews are. They always manage to brighten up my day. I also want to give a special shout out to Guest Wally. His products are amazing, and the fact that he personally calls customers for a chat is truly fantastic. Keep up the good work. RCR has been a lifesaver for many. Yes, indeed. Thank you for that. And it's been a lifesaver for me. Dear Rodney, regarding the solar farms, oh, remember Elizabeth Creevy. If they generate that level of heat into the atmosphere, that will cause global warming, which our government has been banging on for recent years about trying to prevent. So how does this fit the narrative? Regards, Jane. Yeah, man, they're all hypocrites, aren't they? Hello, Rodney. It's Phil. Those dirty green solar panels and windmills are just an expensive green lobby dream, and the thrust of these so-called renewables is responsible for jacking up power bills around this country and the world. Unfortunately, because most council New Zealand are socialist and thoroughly captured by the green lobby and the myth of climate change, they're right behind these abominations upon the landscape. Fight them hard. It's yet another hill to die in. Good show, Rodney. Cheers, Phil. Your interview with Elizabeth Creevy on the solar threat in Greytown was brilliant, enlightening and clear. Thank you for doing this. Wonderfully informative program, which we in South Greytown are sharing by all means possible. Cheers, Gail and Peter. Thank you. Thank you for the wonderful coalition uh, commentary. It's sure the best unbelievable news we've had in years. I agree. I'm sorry I ever doubted Winston in RCR, but he has delivered beyond all expectations and it's such a rare feeling to be relieved and hopeful. Me too. As one of your biggest fans, Rodney, oh, that's kind. I've got some constructive criticism for you. Oh, without all the ridiculous idealistic pressure now, you can work on your overall respect for Indigenous language. You mentioned that you struggle with names, but bastardizing them is another thing. Ah, quite right. Thank you. This is, uh, remember we did the thing on uh, lead with Ananda Card. I built a machine to mine lead out of the soil in front of traps on shotgun clubs. I managed to get my machine working and I got 28 tons of lead out of one small gun club and it wasn't even the tip of the ice the truth we have a huge problem in this country with lead someone else says read these articles oh it's by our good friend gary moller so go to garymoller.com and search out lead uh, gary is a great guy we must have him on hi rodney just listening to ananda regarding the lead it's no different to asbestos and could be handled the same way with regards to renovations love your show about the lead, I grew up along with kids chewing on the ends of our lead pencils, which appearing to provide inspiration seemed to solve the math problems, written language spelling, etc. Many of us ended up with absolute dead-end mangled pencils, but we all had strong health. I can't remember ever being sick or unable to participate in games or sports. Yes, but I think that lead is graphite. Right? It's carbon. It's not actually a lead pencil as in PB. It's carbon. I think I'm writing that. Correct me if I'm not. Remember, send me an email, inbox at rallycheck.radio, text me 2057. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Love you all. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your criticisms, your suggestions with me and with our listeners.
Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. What a great show we've had. Oh, my goodness, so much that was good. Kathy Jamieson, always wonderful. And I really enjoyed talking to Christine Smith. I hope you enjoyed the conversation also. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057, email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. And oh, my goodness, how much did I love the mailbag this week? We had two bumper crops, one on uh, Israel and Gaza, uh, divided, uh, and we can handle that. We can handle that debate and that discussion. And, of course, one general one. So thank you, everyone, for getting into contact with me. At, um, it's how we build the community. And, of course, we haven't got a radio station here, but a community, a community of people who are talking and are communicating, and we want to extend that and build that um, so we can understand better the world around us and not feel alone and targeted and bewildered because we've been through a lot, but together we can survive and thrive. So thank you for having me along. I love it so much. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.